So as long as it's fair, as long as it's voluntary, inequality is fine. Inequality is great. We want those who succeed to be more rewarded than those who destroy value. But in the sense of our current environment, we have really sinister inequality. If everybody, you know, if, if the water's flowing and everyone is benefiting, right, everyone's cup is filled, um, people are happy, right? They have better things to do than to line up outside of someone's house and threaten to chop their head off. You know, I, I don't think we should be setting up guillotines anywhere. And that's, that's why I love Bitcoin. It's the peaceful revolution, right? Um, but why do people want to set up these guillotines? Because they know the system isn't working. It started to make a lot of sense to me that if we fixed money, we fixed so many problems in society. And so as a technology person, I was like, what should I be working on that's more important than this? this is, there's nothing more important than this. Welcome to the Tucson Bitcoin Podcast. Today I have on Michael Rechtenwald, who is a prolific author, having written over 11 books. He was a former professor at New York University and is a frequent speaker at the Mises Institute. He is a voice of reason in a time of craziness, and I really appreciated this conversation as we really broke down the negative impacts of social media on society, positives around Bitcoin and money, uh, talking about central banking you know the whole gambit uh but he has a really interesting and unique look at social media so that's what we focused on a lot uh hope you enjoy all right i'm recording welcome to the podcast michael good to have you on hey thanks for having me alex good to be here sure so I heard about you uh, for the first time. Um, I saw one of your tweets saying that you were going to go speak at the Mises Institute, and that's how I stumbled across you. I was like, oh, if you're speaking there, you have to be legit. Um, and uh, really enjoyed getting into some of your content and talks that you've done. Uh, I think you're a voice of reason in a time of insanity. Uh, so it's always good to hear. Um, but yeah, you've had quite the progression. So you talked about uh, being involved in kind of leftist uh, Marxist thought earlier on in your career and kind of shifting more towards the libertarian side of things. What what caused that shift for you? Yeah, I mean, I completely shift from Marxism and leftism to uh, classical liberalism or libertarianism. Uh, but uh, the, the shift really took place. Uh, I was one of the early quote unquote victims, I guess, of cancel culture in the university system. And uh, whenever uh, uh, that, uh, whenever the social justice fanatics uh, and the rest of the left uh, on, on and offline uh, came after me for criticizing certain things in the university system and uh, at NYU and across the country, all these crazy uh, happenings. And this was before they've gotten even like 10 times worse. Uh, it, it just uh, woke me up to uh, what totalitarians they are. Yeah, they're, they're little totalitarians. And uh, when I saw the totalitarianism uh, of the left, uh, I had had it with it almost immediately. And then um, I started to do some deep reading in Mises and uh, uh, Rothbard and others, uh, but especially Mises I found to be the best 
critic of socialism uh, that I've seen. Uh, and uh, to get to the heart of the problems with it. And uh, just, I read, you know, all over the place in, in Mises and, uh, <clears throat> and uh, you know, I always had a libertarian bent. Uh, even as a communist, I thought I was a libertarian communist, uh, which it sounds like a contradiction, but there is such a strain within, uh, you know, within Marxist um, milieus. And so I always had a libertarian bent and never liked, um, you know, uh, the kind of dictatorial uh, ambitions of some people on the left. And I hadn't really seen them come out so clearly until they turned their guns on me. Uh, and then I saw it very clearly. Sure. Yeah, that, that unfortunately is a really common... Uh story that we're hearing a lot of of kind of the mob attacking people and i think it's a, a strange um strange uh occurrence because i think it's important for people to have conversations about things to really dive into topics deeply and like debate is not an unhealthy thing um and it it seems like it kind of happens on the right and the left. Uh, and the nice thing about being of a libertarian persuasion is that you really belong to neither. Um, and when I talk about the right, I'm talking about like um, very similar things that happen where the mob attacks, um, uh, you know, leftist speakers uh, like uh, Michael Moore in Utah, uh, which really kind of baffled me because I thought it was kind of a unique occurrence on the left. And then I watched one of his documentaries uh, where he went to Utah and it looked like the same thing as like Ben Shapiro speaking at a university or something like that. Yeah. I haven't seen that uh, video, but uh, I can believe it. Um, I just think right now though, we're dealing with a particular uh, virulent strain of uh, leftist ideology that's the dominant one by a long shot and it's uh it's controlling uh every area of the culture now uh including not just academia it's way beyond that i mean we're, we know where it's at everywhere corporate america um sports uh, uh of course the media social media so you know i've been trying to analyze just what this is about uh and why leftism why is leftism dominating and just why are um why for example are you know these corporations going woke and, and why is like twitter facebook google etc why are they leftists so uh and i i just talked about that in a mises talk um called the google election and uh i try to explain what i think it's going on I've been coming at this from many, many different angles. I've been keep trying to uh, approach this problem because I consider it to be a, a challenge intellectually and analytically, uh, a problem, a challenge to figure out why these mega, you know, billionaires are embracing socialism in effect. You know, it's very curious. It's a very curious development. And, uh, you know, I, I've given explanations for it. Um, and we can talk about that if you wish. But, you know, sure. maybe later on down the road here. 
Yeah, you mentioned uh, in one of your talks about big tech being an extension of the government. Um, and yeah. I think it's a state apparatus. I mean, as I said in that talk, not only were they did they get their startup funding, for example, in the case of Google from InQtel, which was a, a major, um, it's, it's, the, it's the CIA's venture capitalist uh, capital firm. Uh, and uh, not only get their startup funding, but they've had in cash, you know, major infusions from, from the military and intelligence uh, uh, agencies uh, since their inception. So these are extensions of the state. So they're more interested in, uh, they're more interested in status functions primarily than they are in market functions. The market is just a subsidiary uh, auxiliary function of what they're about. Making money is just a bonus that goes on top of their real function, which is ideological. It's, these are ideological state apparatuses. Yeah, it's pretty crazy to, to think about that. And uh, one of the interesting conversations that's coming up in response is uh, the argument that we should be regulating uh, these tech companies as public utilities, which I think just kind of further solidifies. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. yeah this just solidifies their state, uh, the state at becoming, becoming almost, uh, you know, adoptees of the state at that point. The problem was, you know, as Mises pointed out, every time you intervene, it causes the need to intervene again. Every time the state intervenes, it, it requires further interventions to fix the interventions that they had in the first place. And that's exactly what we're seeing. This is a market distortion uh, because they were given all this head start uh, by, you know, these huge cash infusions from the intelligence and military communities. They now have become you know, de facto monopolies. Now, I know they're not technically legal monopolies, but they're dominating the market in a way that's not natural. Uh, it is not a natural market function here that they are this predominant. And it has to do with their uh, head start. They're, 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 you know, this, I don't believe regulation is the key at all. Um, in fact, I think the total deregulation is the key. So they should uh, deregulate. First of all, they should have to you know, uh, first of all, they should never have been given this kind of money to start. And, and uh, secondly, they shouldn't, they shouldn't be allowed to be basically arbiters uh, of speech, uh, of information. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, right now we're, we're dealing with a kind of uh, total propaganda and uh, censorship um, regime that is, uh, you know, uh, quite, quite almost unparalleled in some ways. Because of the reach of digital media, uh, the reach of this is, is more profound than anything you can do through pamphlets and just, you know, state repression. It's all happening on, uh, on, in, on, a, on a scale of, of, of uh, nanobits and it, it's permeating everything and it can't be contained. This kind of propaganda and censorship is, uh, it's unparalleled in, in terms of its, it, its reach, not necessarily in terms of its severity. It's a kind of soft totalitarianism 
but it is nonetheless totalitarian. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really interesting. I, I debate a lot with uh, my socialist friends on you have socialist friends do. <laughs> I, I do. It, it's hard not to have socialist friends. Um, These days. Yeah. Otherwise you don't have any friends. <laughs> yeah. Just my Twitter friends. Um, uh, but yeah, I debate with them on the idea. So it, it's really an interesting argument. A lot of times that um, the government it has created problems. And so we need to give them more power to fix problems. And that's generally the argument. Um, so like the big one that I have is on the idea of um, Medicare for all. Uh, that's one mm -hmm. that I argue for and, uh, or not for, but against um, pretty yeah. frequently. I'm pretty with you on the, the deregulation. Um, so yeah, uh, the totalitarianism is pretty scary. So one yeah. of the thing, one of the things um, I think a lot of people are struggling with in 2020 is determining what is real from what is false. And it's almost impossible yes. to do that. Right. Um, As I said in Google Archipelago, uh, my book, I said that they, what's happening is they're erecting a simulacrum uh, and it's displacing reality. Uh, and they're at, you know, these digital Goliaths have erected a simulacrum in place. And so that the real, the real crisis we have is a crisis of, of a metaphysics of truth, where we're in a crisis of, a, we're in a, a deep epistemological crisis. Uh, in a post-truth uh, epistemological aporia. Uh, we're, we're in the deep throes of epistemological uh, uncertainty and uh, even less, worse than uncertainty, uh, lack of even possibility for seeming to be able to get a hold of a real metaphysics of truth. So for the average person, what would you suggest for them in this environment? Um, well, I don't know. I mean, it depends on which, whether they've already been indoctrinated or not. You know, if they're already indoctrinated, I, I, I mean, it, it's going to take radical deplugging and uh, debriefing and, you know, almost brain scrambling because there have been people are right now, there's a, a huge segment of the population that's possessed ideologically. Um, they're effectively possessed by ideology. And likewise, they can't see anything uh, without that framework. And they see everything in terms of that framework. And they can't see certain things at all because the ideological frame prohibits it. Even the, even the uh, descrying or the the, the, the perception of various phenomena are not possible. The ideological uh, blinders are that powerful. So for those people, I would say, um, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, how do you red pill somebody? I mean, and when I say red pilling, that's not turning them into a right winger. That's deplugging from the matrix of this ideological uh, machinations that we're under, undergoing here. Uh, but for the others, I'd say just keep inoculating yourself uh, with reading things outside of the paradigm that has been foisted on us. Uh, keep 
you keep reading about different uh, perspectives, uh, there are certain things that I find to be good, good inoculants. Uh, one of them is Nietzsche. Read some Nietzsche. Whether you agree with what everything he has to say, it's a very good inoculation. Uh, and then, of course, the Austrian school is good. But if, if for a deeper philosophical um, resistance to it, and this is the real resistance now, I would say, you know, you need to read some Nietzsche, <laughs> really. Because this whole bullshit about equality, uh, you know, that everything is about equality. When this isn't really about equality, this is an inversion of the of the social hierarchy. So, <clears throat> uh, see, one of the things that I've been doing that none of the other critics from the academic realm have done was to tie the stuff that's going that went on and is still going on in the academy to the larger agenda of what's what this is all about. Uh, the 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 critical race theory and the uh, the demonization of whites and whiteness, um, the you know constant identity politicking, um, the way the university has turned into nothing but a ghetto of uh, of various uh, identity uh, politicking uh, creeds, but it's all one creed, a different. Different, uh, different elements vying for the most subaltern or subordinated status. It's all about inverting the hierarchy, but really what they want to do is, uh, I think the whole bigger objective is to uh, create the conditions under which uh, the, the powers that be can rationalize the, uh, the great, uh, a great, destabilization of the, uh, what I, I guess for lack of a better term, I would call uh, middle-class life and the lower, the dramatic lowering of expectations for what's possible uh, so that, you know, they're trying to use like race as a way of making a lot of people feel like, well, I don't deserve anything because I'm, you know, my, 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 tribe is guilty of these horrendous things of racism and, and on and on and on. I think this is a way of rationalizing the kind of debunking and the leveling that there that is being undertaken. This kind of leveling and lo dramatically lowering expectations and not, not just expectations for income, expectations for rights about what we're allowed to do, whether we're allowed to move around in space whether we're allowed to breathe without masks on, whether we are allowed to, to express opinions that aren't uh, acceptable, uh, and they have every which way to get rid of you if you do something wrong, I mean, through corporate, you know, so I think that corporations and social media, these are all extensions of the state now. They're all acting on the, they're all undertaking state functions of a, a new totalitarian, a totalitarian regime that is interested in total control and abrogating our individual rights, uh, lowering our economic expectations, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I know that sounds pretty grim, but that's how I see it. Yeah, I think the reality that we're in is pretty grim. Um, and so one of the routes that I try and take 
uh, one one place of respect I have for a lot of people on the left is their unique ability compared to the right. I mean, those are like bad ways to frame it um, because they're both like focusing on silly things. But a lot of the left has a real ability to focus on real issues. They just present real terrible solutions to them. And so one of the routes that I try and uh, go is addressing those issues and bringing libertarian ideas to them. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I believe racism is a real issue. Um, mm -hmm. I think identity politics are stupid, you know, because, you know, the idea that a black person should vote for Joe Biden because Kamala Harris is the vice president and she's black is like just as ignorant as saying that me as a white man should vote for Donald Trump because he's white and male and represents right. mine. Um, and so I think there's some pretty big holes in the uh, identity politics aspect of things on both the right and the left because they're both playing them. But, uh, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, when it comes down to, you know, these, these issues, it's just so unfortunate to watch people get wrapped up in, in things that are just like so meaningless because um, you know, renaming, uh, like the establishment loves this stuff because it distracts from the real structural issues that are, you know, it's way easier to rename uh, um, a street or a, yeah. a school or a building than, than it, it is, is to, to create it. Yeah. It, than it is to have a, a, a society in which wealth production is possible for everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In fact, I think that some of this stuff is, uh, being undertaken because they're trying to, because uh, wealth production is being curtailed. Uh, you know, the COVID lockdowns are, are not scientifically valid in terms of their efficacy with reference to the virus, but they sure have another function. And that is to, to debase the economic foundations of many people, not just, uh, business owners, but even just employees, because, it, you know, it's not only put a lot of people out of work, but it's made it impossible for people to get other work because mm -hmm. there's, you know, with, with the paucity of, of opportunities, um, I think it leaves people in a kind of uh, state where they're, then they're almost ready and willing to welcome UBI, you know, universal basic income, because after all, uh, then I'll, at least I'll have, you know, my needs met but within very constrained and uh, delimited uh, conditions. Yeah. So it's a pretty grim future. Do you see, what, what do you see as um, the ways that people can uh, kind of fight back against it and, and opt out from it? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking that um, See, see, the thing is, you can't oppose this in a way that is like the opposition that's really behind it. And that is, you can't oppose it through collectivism because collectivism is the problem. So trying to become collectivist in opposing this only uh, creates just another tribe, you know. So you'll have just another tribe that's out there battling with the left or, you know, you'll have a right-left tribalism, which is not the answer. Um, 
I'm, I'm going to say that um, the assertion of rights is going to have to come at some point. Uh, the assertion of individual rights. Uh, because right now we're in serious danger of their uh, abrogation. Um, and that means that, you know, we'll just accept that we don't have the right to travel without uh, all these COVID restrictions or move about in space freely, that this is going to become just the way it is. And we'll be habituated to being curtailed and in, in, uh, uh, in speech and in movement and in other means of self-determination. So I'm gonna say that at some point people are going to have to have guts. It's gonna take severe, serious courage. Uh, and if they don't have the guts, they're gonna basically put themselves in a straitjacket for, and their, and their, and their progeny as well. Uh, somebody's gotta fight this. Uh, and I don't mean this collectively, but you, you know, as individuals, and then not to be on the side of the horde that's ready and willing to punish transgressors at the, you know, because this is part of the way that totalitarianism works is by enrolling people into the roles of surveiller, of punisher, uh, of, uh, of, you know, mob, uh, attacker this is how it does it doesn't work without that there's no way it works without that so defiance is going to be uh, a key and it's going to take serious guts and you might be standing out there alone in some cases uh, but you're going to have to have the fortitude to do so S somebody has to trailblaze here Without trailblazers, we're going to have no trail, and there'll be nothing to follow. So, I mean, I don't, I do believe in leaders, and I think leadership is important. Uh, you know, I'm not some, some sort of egalitarian that suggests that you know there's no, this is a leaderless society. I, I don't believe that at all. I think leaders are necessary, and leaders are the ones that provide examples that others can follow behind. Uh, and asserting their rights, asserting their um, their uh, self-determination. Uh, and this means in, in the civic sphere, in the economic sphere, in the intellectual sphere, etc. Yeah, it's, uh, and I think there's a lot of people popping up and pushing back and it's really interesting to yeah. watch them. Yes, uh, there are. And they're just like absolutely demonized. Um, oh, yeah. Dogs are attacking me. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I mean, a lot of people might find this to be kind of an extreme example, but I, I look to, there's some people that I really respect in regards to uh fighting back against uh, Nazi Germany, whether that would be um, uh, two that come to mind is uh, Corey Ten Boom, who hid uh, Jewish people and ended up going to the concentration camps as a result of it. And then also uh, um, Friedrich Bonhoeffer, who mm -hmm. died in um, prison for speaking out against the Nazi regime. Uh, 
And I, I think there's something that is just really powerful. Um, I forgot where I heard this. I heard this uh, um, earlier in the week, but uh, there was a professor that was talking about this, the importance of stepping outside of indoctrination and uh, mm -hmm. uh, fighting against the propaganda. And so one of the things Maybe, uh, that- Mark Crispin Miller, was that him? Mark Crispin Miller? I. I don't know. It was, it was on a podcast, but um, I probably couldn't name his name, but one of the, Oh, it was a guy referencing a Southern uh, um, uh, professor. But one of the things he, he would always ask his class is uh, how many of you would have been abolitionists, you know, mm -hmm. earlier on in our country's history and, you know, everybody mm -hmm. raises their hands. And then he asked why, was the majority of the country not abolitionist? Why was that such a minority if all of you are raising your hands right now? Um, mm -hmm. And I thought that was a really interesting perspective. Yeah, the way to, to determine whether you would have been a Nazi uh, cooperator or, or a dissident or a Stalin, a Stalinist uh, cooperator or dissident or uh, an abolitionist or, uh, or a... Uh, Conform, it's conformity. The question is whether you're, what, what is your, what is your tolerance for nonconformity? How, how much conformity are you willing to, um, how much conformity, uh, how conformist are you right now in, in terms of the con present conditions? Are you, are you so conformist that you're afraid to speak up about some of these uh, absurd absurd uh, claims that are being made that uh, that are being you know foisted on us like to so the key about totalitarian ideology is not so much to make you believe it but to demoralize you so much that you can't even that you're afraid to speak up about what you do know to be true uh, so it's not necessarily that you actually imbibe the ideology directly but the demoralization campaign is severe and um, so how much do you have the guts to non-conform in the current conditions against what is, what is totalitarian in its character? Um, if you don't have that guts, then likely you would have been a, a Nazi cooperator. You would have been a Stalinist, uh, good Stalinist subject. You would have been uh, likely a good uh, slave uh, supporting uh, citizen. So yeah, that, that's the key. Yeah. And I think one of the really hard things about this is uh, the way that uh, the argument is being formulated that being uh, or kind of supporting these totalitarian measures is actually a fight back against the establishment. And I think uh, that's where, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a stunning, it's a stunning reversal to me in my way of thinking, having, coming, having come from the left, to see leftists embracing the dominant totalitarian corporate sponsored, uh, state sponsored ideological formation and thinking that they're radicals in doing so. Uh, imagining that they're opposing something like they're opposing the dominant when they're absolutely foot soldiers for it. Absolutely, you know, like I, I've said before, they, they have the left, uh, their marionettes on a string 
on strings being 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 um, manipulated by um, by their corporate puppet masters, uh, and they have no idea that that's what's happening. It's apparently, or else they are fine with it because they think, well, we'll get them someday. Uh, but you know, I noticed that a lot of the left likes they have no problem with like, for example, big, giant, big conglomerate businesses, but they have a real problem with small businesses for some reason, okay? Um, they have no problem with mega powerful corporate apparatuses and but they have real problem with a singular individual stating what they think that's at variance. Uh, so they have no problem with Amazon selling you everything under the sun but they have a real problem if you try to huck some wares online. It's, it's, it's really curious. Um, so I think that's, there, there, is a, there is a tendency for the left to actually favor monopolization because what after all is socialism but monopoly. It's the monopolization of everything, uh, production but also ideological um, and uh, cultural uh, social, uh, educational, uh, every sort of realm is under the thumb of one regime, one party, one regime. So we're, we're headed towards the possibility of a singular party rule here in the U.S. Uh, and I'm not uh, speaking here as a partisan so much as a very alarmed observer who sees the possibility that we could have a one, a singular party and this isn't even, uh, now there are those who say, well, it's always been one, you know, two birds of the same, two wings of the same bird. Well, well, there were at least two wings. Now we're talking about a single rock or a single, uh, a single uh, rocket engine, you know, uh, it, it won't be divisible at all. There'll be no way to even have a choice if this continues. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, the way that I have come to see things and my, my general focus is on fixing the money. And I feel like if we fix the money, we're able to fix a lot of the issues that we see in society. So like the ever um, growing of government, you know, they can tax us explicitly and continue mm -hmm. to raise taxes, but they can also uh, tax us through inflation, which is very covert. Um, mm -hmm. and one of the crazy things that we're seeing is like all these local governments are going broke and, or have been broke for a while. It's kind of hitting right. a breaking point where they're having to turn to banks and the federal reserve to fund them. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and I, I just don't see like the ability to increase tax revenues to pay for their deficits as being a thing. And I feel like when we get to that point, one, there's where they're not relying on tax revenue to grow um, and they can just print, they can um, endlessly grow. And then two, they're no longer, uh, I mean, the, the idea of democracy is, is the government being accountable to people. And, and I see that as not really being a thing for a while and growing um, less and less of a thing um, in the future. And so so yeah, definitely. Uh, I think inflation is going to be a major uh, crushing. I mean, there's no way that it could be warded off much longer. 
uh, and it's already going on, but it's seemingly being somehow disguised. I, I really don't know how. Uh, I'm not a financial expert, but I, I do think that inflation is going to become like a massive boulder on our backs because mm -hmm. you can't just keep printing money like this. And this is not real money. You know, so I can understand why people have been investing in cryptocurrencies and things like that, because uh, at least it's not hinged on total inflationary printing and reproduction of a completely faux currency. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, so I talk about Bitcoin a lot on the podcast and that's kind of what the theme of it is. And I think one of the, most attractive uh, parts about Bitcoin is that it's censorship resistant and it's peer-to-peer -peer digital cash. So you can mm -hmm. self-custody, um, which is impossible to do with government fiat currency today in its current, current right. form and probably always will be impossible. Um, but yeah, the, both of those things are in, in what you talked about not being debased by the government, like, all of those things are really empowering. And I see that as a solution forward for a lot of people. Um, yes. I think th that uh, cryptocurrency plus a kind of new, uh, a new cottage industri industrial cottage industry movement um, where people become, everybody has to become an entrepreneur of some sort. Mm -hmm. If you're not an entrepreneur, you're a slave. Mm -hmm. Uh, and likely it'd be best off to be an entrepreneur who's doing business with a currency that's real, uh, that hasn't got a fake uh, imprimatur on it that's basically without value eventually. Uh, so, you know, uh, Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies or other types of direct exchange uh, are the only way probably forward for and I think you're right. I think once you have an economic base for your, and a sturdy, you know, a sturdy economic base, this becomes the ve vehicle for rights to be asserted mm -hmm. um, because you're not worried about being canceled. You can't be canceled from yourself. Um, and you have uh, a network of people that are also uncancelable. The more uncancelable people we have, the greater power we'll have to assert ourselves individually and as uh, as a kind of network. I don't like to say collectively because I hate collectives, but as a network. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a point that uh, gives me a lot of hope for the future. Uh, one, of, one of the most terrifying things that I heard, uh, I mean, the monetary system is already extremely terrifying if you really break it down, but um, the, there's this idea um, it's coming soon, but central bank digital currencies. And mm -hmm. one of the ideas that was presented in it was that they would be able to tax um, on any transaction and just pull directly out because they have control of the currency. Whereas like today you have to like, um, there, there's steps. And, yeah. There's steps, there's gaps. You can, you can uh, justify write-offs and you can do different things. You can cheat, you know, which I don't recommend, but you know, you can. Uh, whereas there'll be no cheating and except on their part, that is, that will get everything coming to them. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah, it's the perfect monopoly. Yeah. 
is that people don't recognize this, you know, how this digital currency would be a solidifying the monopoly uh, over people. Uh, it would be an enormous, uh, enormous blow. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, yeah. I want to jumping back to something that we talked about earlier. So you talked about um, the idea of red pilling. I, I call it orange pilling because I, I talk about Bitcoin as like the on-ramp to free, free thought, but, uh, and self-sovereignty. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, the way you were describing it, it almost sounded like, you know, to help people out of that mindset, it's like helping them leave the cult. Yes, like, it's very much like leaving a cult. I would say that's right. But and it may, you know, it may take professionals. Uh, I don't have the knowledge base to, de you know, to debrief somebody and to de-indoctrinate them from a cult, although I do have recommendations how to prevent getting into one. Mm -hmm. how to be how to how to how to ward it off I'm, but that's kind of more preventative than it is you know uh kind of uh what in medical terms that would be you know uh curative you know i'm, I'm not sure how to cure it but you know I, I do think i have good ideas about how to prevent it yeah yeah it's i think people are especially vulnerable right now to those types of mindsets um, and to the propaganda because they're isolated, you know, probably in struggling financially. Uh, just. Yes. It's a lot easier to believe that this, that the, you know, that the state and that the, you know, extensions of the state have your best, you know, that are, that are, they're honest, that they're telling the truth and that they, you know, they have your interest at stake it's much more comforting to believe that it's much less difficult to maintain than it is to maintain what we, what amounts to an amazing dif difficulty in trying to stay immunized and to stay resistant to this. It's like a virus is really what it's like. The real virus that we're dealing with is ideological. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One word I like to call it is uh, that I've, heard a lot is the fiat disease <laughs> in the way the that fiat disease yeah it, it informs sure, that makes sense yeah um so yeah it, it, one question that i mean one, one thing that i've been looking at is specifically because the u.s sometimes can be hostile regulatory or with the regulations against bitcoin um Mm -hmm. is looking for other jurisdictions to potentially move to. Uh, do mm -hmm. you feel like there's any government in the world that's really doing it right right now? I don't know. I, I wouldn't go anywhere to Europe, anywhere in Europe. Um, I mean, you, you can get some reprieve in some, some uh, Latin American countries, I think. Um, but it isn't really a solution. It's, it's really just a reprieve. They're less repressive because they, they have less resources to be repressive. So, you know, uh, I have friends that have become expats and have moved to places like um, uh, uh, Costa Rica, uh, Honduras and stuff like that, because the state is just less on you all, all the time. The, 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 it, there's, a gap, there's more of a gap between what they're able to undertake and it gives you more latitude. 
So I would say some South American countries, but there, there's nothing right now. I, don't, I mean, no, there's no, no, nothing even approaching utopian, you know, mm -hmm. nothing like that, but uh, it, they're better. I don't want to give up the fight. Um, I've been offered to move there to, to Costa Rica, for example. A friend has said, listen, I got a place, you know, here's your spot. You'll have a huge space of your own. We could, or we could rent out or buy a house there easily. But I don't want to give up the fight here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a standpoint that I've had, too, because I feel like this battle is really, really important. It's it's not one. It, it's one that's universal. I, I've been reading the book, The Creature from Jekyll Island recently, which is hmm. kind of a fun one. Um, but uh, or I don't know if I'd call it fun. It's more depressing, but. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's it's fun and depressing at the same time. Uh, yeah, but, um, I like depressing books myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because when I read other people's horrific, and you know, the horrific uh, imaginary or otherwise conditions that people are under, it, it gives you a relief because you recognize that if this is a this is something that's been dealt with universally in human history, and you're not alone, and also it could be worse. And so it's relieving. It's actually relieving. It gives you sort of a reprieve um, from your own uh, state. You know, I try to do that with my novel Thought Criminal, not to plug that joke directly, but I am an intellectual entrepreneur, so I have to. <laughs> but Thought Criminal is like that. It's very, very, can, things just keep getting narrower and narrower for the characters. And they get, there looks, seems to be no way out. Ever, you know, but they managed to find loopholes here and there, you know, and uh, that's basically, I think it's the same kind of read that you're talking about. Now, mm -hmm. Tell me more about that book. Yeah, so it's on the history of uh, the Federal Reserve. So it starts out with, uh, it, it just really breaks down the monetary system really well. Um, it starts out with kind of the conspiracy of creating the Federal Reserve. And it was definitely a conspiracy. Uh, you know, they met in secret and, mm -hmm. you know, worked yeah, where really did they go some, uh, They went down to some island off the coast of, uh, yep. was it Jekyll, Jekyll Island? Yeah, yeah. Jekyll Island, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just a creepy sounding island. Just um, right there, I mean, yeah. Could they have made it any more like sci-fi horror yeah. in effect? <laughs> well, it was. I mean, they had six people that represented like a quarter of the world's wealth, all gathered on an island, dictating, you know, the future of the, you know, the world monetary system pretty much. And, you know, 1912, I think it was. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, one, one of the ideas presented in the book is that central banking is inherently uh, totalitarian and socialist and that out mm -hmm. with any any attempt to um, you know, fight back against it that doesn't address those issues is going to be kind of short-sighted. And so that's one of the big reasons why I don't really care much for uh, the current president is, uh, you know, he, he's bashing the, dr the drum of negative interest rates and, you know, buddy-buddy with the Fed. And it's like, come on, man, like you're not really pushing for any sort of change or... No, you know, it's, nothing, it's nothing substantive, you know. Yeah. For him, I think for in his case, I think it's more of symbolic for some people. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a symbolic leaf that he's, you know, that he's basically holding out. 
and people are holding out hope that that leaf represents something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Um, what, what's your favorite book that you've written? I know you've written quite a few. Well, I gotta say that looking at the last four, which is the, the last four, which I wrote in the last two years, um, since the break, you know, let's call it that. <laughs> is, <laughs> the first one, Springtime for Snowflakes, is actually probably the best uh, literary-wise. You know, the writing mm -hmm. is, is the best. Uh, it's probably the best writing. But I'm, um, I'm, 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 I'm very proud of that. But Google Archipelago, I think, is the most important one. Uh, in terms of the argument and what it's getting at. It's a difficult argument, so the book might feel disjointed to people, and I've been told that by a couple readers, but mostly nobody complains too much because I'm piecing together a lot of difficult things. You know, like, you're just talking about these, you know, these six, was it six of the world's uh, wealthiest people representing a quarter of the world's wealth effectively setting up socialism? Right uh, through central banking, this is this this kind of concept that that socialism will blow the left's mind. They can't get a handle on that. Why is that social? That's not socialism. That's capitalism. That's capitalism at its worst. Blah blah blah. So I've been trying to poke at that question, uh, and I call it corporate socialism. Uh, it, it is uh, it's, it's, it, these super oligarchs have an interest in a socialist society. And it's very difficult for people to get a handle on that, apparently. Maybe for you, it's easy because you were never indoctrinated into leftism. But I was so many people. Oh, you were? Okay. Yeah. I grew up, I grew up just north of Chicago there. I got my fair dose of uh, oh, okay. Yeah. So you, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Sir? What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, uh, I would have never thought that, you know, I, I, I mean, the general uh, consensus is that the left represents the worker and breaking up monopolies and stuff like that. And yeah. the right is the rich people's party. Um, and I, yeah. um, I mean, that's just the way that I, I saw it. I mean, I, I would always applaud taxes, you know, because I was like, oh yeah, we need more money for these things. Um, it just mm -hmm. makes sense. Uh, and then it, it wasn't until I, I started diving into economics and seeing like that. I, I, I've worked in social work for like seven years and to see the difference between one to see like how corrupt that industry is and then mm -hmm. to see it all getting consolidated and monopolistic and, and the way that they just prey on people preying on them and they're keeping them captive they're, they're totally yeah. debilitating these people it's mm -hmm. like a captive uh, colonies right like they they create this colony of effective lepers in a way mm -hmm. uh, i'm not saying they're contagious i mean i just mean they're they're making them incapacitated in some sense mm -hmm. and then they're so they're they're invested in in maintaining that incapacitation yeah it's just it I don't really know what, I mean, I, I feel like I moved out to Arizona when I was 17 and uh, started, you know, bought my first gun at 18 and kind of embraced the right 
side of things, but you know, after seeing the Patriot Act and George Bush and oh yeah, well that's a whole different yeah, that's yeah. a big animal of rightism that's you know horrendous. Yeah, yeah, it's just it it at the end of the day, like my goal is I want to see like the most prosperous society that I can, you know, I care about my community a lot. You know, I care about people in vulnerable positions and um, I want to see them empowered. And I think that it's very, very apparent that socialism is not going to do those things and never has and never will. And so that's, and I think libertarian thought ultimately is, I mean, one of the things you talked about is like, you know, our future, um, everybody needs to become an entrepreneur or else, uh, um, you know, they'll just be slaves to their employers. And we're, you know, we're seeing that it's, everybody's a slave to their employer. You know, they're living paycheck to paycheck. If they lose their job, it's a crisis. And Mm -hmm. the biggest obstacles to doing that are taxes and regulations that make it harder. And yes, absolutely. Taxes and regulations. Taxes, which take so much of your money so that you can invest in your own production capacities. Regulations, which make the cost of entry so high. Uh, every type of way to trammel and keep people into, you know, what I consider a, low, a, a, a permanent low class, permanent slave class, if you will, which is actually being undertaken by um, and, and with the use of kind of socialist ideology uh, and socialist programs, uh, interestingly enough, right? Uh, yeah. So once you get this kind of a breakthrough, but, you know, it takes, it, it's obviously a big, shall we say, it's a gestalt shift mm-hmm. that you have to undergo, and you can't impart this to anybody else. It has to happen to them. So I don't know what else to say to them because like you were saying, how did we unpeel, you know, red pill or orange pill, if you will, these, these other people, um, you can't impart this. This is insights that you can't give somebody. Uh, you can't really lend it to them. You can't, you can't really convince them of it through argumentation. Something has to break within their own consciousness and, uh, and, uh, and er- everything that you've been taught, like left is this, right is that, you know, left is for the little guy, the right, you know, it's all wrong, you know, it's all wrong. I mean, it's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to get this across, but it's all wrong. Yeah, it, it's like teaching everybody that the earth is still flat is the way that I, I mean, I've been, I've been really trying to be open-minded, um, to different schools of economic thought outside of the Austrian school. Sure. And it's really difficult because it's just so counterintuitive now, like to listen to modern monetary theory, just the, it's the nonsense that they build on top of. Um, <laughs> right. To, it's yeah, the, it's I mean, the premises that are so flawed. And then they just build all these edifices on top of these flawed premises. And, mm-hmm. and, that it, and then it becomes establishment. And then it basically has the right of way because it's established. You know, it doesn't have any better, it doesn't have any real credentials uh, or, or justification for its existence other than it is. 
<laughs> you know, other than that's what has dominated. Its dominance is really the only thing that it has going for it. It doesn't have, make any sense. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it's that's uh, one of the things that I love to do is break things down to first principles. So I, I just had a, um, Alex Gladstein on the podcast and he works for the uh, human rights organization. And so one of the things I had him break down right off the bat, because there's a misconception on what human rights are, um, is what are human rights and then like things like breaking down money to first principles. Um, because there's so many assumptions that we build upon and right um, now people it's, think it's a human right to have health care for example mm -hmm. which is absurd i mean that's you don't have a right to enslave somebody do you so i mean how could you have a right to health care um you don't have a right to health care you have a right to get it if you want it i mean if it exists but you don't have a right to health insurance mm -hmm. Healthcare insurance. I mean, that's like a right. Yeah. So, what did he say were the basic human rights? Um. Well, he, one of the things he talked about, he 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 was stating that um. Uh, things like healthcare and you know stuff like that are are entitlements. Um, yeah. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, human rights would be you know kind of referring <laughs> back to the Bill of Rights. You know, so like freedom yeah. of um, speech, freedom of self-protection. I mean, one of the things that right. drives me crazy uh, about our society is like the erosion of property rights um, mm -hmm. through like civil asset forfeiture. And uh, I mean, 2020 has been absolutely astounding and just blowing apart um, just this the silliness of the whole system like you know looking at brianna taylor where cops just burst into her house and shot her when she was sleeping um mm -hmm. like just the absolute absurdity of that you know the ability of the state to encroach on individuals and just like i mean property taxes it's one of the silliest things i've ever heard of you know because of the idea of i mean to some degree it makes sense like if if the property taxes were going towards like protection of your property. I, I think that would make sense, but it's really not. They're like, you know, go to fund schools and all sorts of it other things. It goes to fund repressive apparatuses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but wouldn't it be interesting, you know, what they're moving to now is wealth tax and that's going to be even more encroaching. Mm -hmm. In other words, you won't be taxed on income, but you'll be taxed on what, on what you have mm -hmm. on, on, a, on an annual or otherwise even perhaps more frequent basis. Yeah. Just for owning things, you're going to be taxed, not for having bought them. Mm -hmm. uh, not, not when you buy them, but always, you know, like they do in some states for cars, which I found abysmal, you know, they, they could tax you every year for owning a car. What? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, but now this is, you know, this is in Biden's plans apparently to establish a wealth tax because after all equalization is the, is the key. That's what they want equal misery for everyone. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a good when it, I, Andrew Yang was really interesting. He talked about how the wealth tax is almost impossible to actually implement. And I think part of the reason why is, you know, we have a two tiered society where you have normal people and then you've got the wealthy. Um, yeah. 
and the wealthy have special privileges because they can pay for asset protection, you know, and they can get around it, you know, like Donald Trump's tax returns or I don't know if they're real or not, but, um, uh, but you know, the idea of him paying less taxes, uh, compared to like average people, or whatever the narrative is, it just shows that, that there's that two-tier mm. system because I, I can't afford for that. So that's- um, Once you can yeah. buy your way into not having to pay taxes, like Amazon can move into different areas mm-hmm. and they don't have to pay property taxes or yep. uh, local taxes uh, so they can get off the ground. And then you got the small business owner down the street with a one door operation has to pay everything that Amazon is exempted from. Yep. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the most egregious things that I learned about this year was um, payroll taxes. So um, the way that payroll taxes work from my uh, minimal understanding, I, I didn't even know what they were until Trump was tweeting about cutting them. But um, uh, the idea of like each employee getting taxed, but the tax instead of placed on in out of coming out of the employee's paycheck it, it comes from the employer and then it gets capped. It. yeah and then it gets capped <laughs> so like it's such an unfair um system of one you know you're punishing um employers for employing people two mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. it's really a tax on the employee that they never see and then three mm-hmm you know, it benefits the larger businesses at expense mm-hmm. to the smaller businesses. And it's just, mm-hmm. it, yes, I don't know. It's, cap, they have a cap on their end, but there's no cap on the employee end, in fact, mm-hmm. except for the, the highest rate, you know, but they don't have a cap as such. No, it's just, it's just a rate. You can't get a higher rate, but there's no cap. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's the way the state uh, enables monopolization or, you know, not monopolies de facto, du, du jour, but de facto monopolization. Um, you know, I'm getting to the point where I'm 60, I'll be 62 years old. And I'm, I'm actually angry that I have paid all this social security money and now I have to basically beg to get it back, mm-hmm. which is total bullshit. You know, give me the money right now that I paid and I should have had the whole time anyway but since you have it why can't i get the whole uh the whole amount back at this moment which i could use you know uh to create business you know it's just uh it's a travesty i don't need a nanny state to take my money and then dole it back to me in little dribbles Mm -hmm. hopefully you don't you're not looking for a pension too because those are looking pretty bad um I have a little bit of money left in that and it's not a pension. It's just a lockdown investment right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not looking to even touch that. Yeah. I got, I got a call today uh, from a friend who was, you know, really concerned about the, the feds actions and whatever, but um, we had a long conversation where he was telling me he had never had any, uh, uh, exposure to Bitcoin before, and he's telling me that he's going to pull all of his money out of his 401k and put it into Bitcoin. And mm. and I thought that was pretty pretty incredible. Um, That's incredible, yeah. I mean, I can see the move. I can see I I can see why you might do it. Um, 
I have a friend that's very heavily invested in the stock market and I've been trying to encourage her to get it out of there mm -hmm. because I don't believe it's going to hold up. And I think there's going to be a big shedding going on pretty soon. Mm -hmm. No. Yeah. And, and that's one thing too, is like another paradigm shift uh, that I suggest for people to do is to start pricing things like the stock market and gold, you know, instead of pricing it in the dollar. And then you can just see that you're not, the returns aren't that great. Um, right. Yeah. Against gold. Yeah. You're not, yeah. Because with inflation, what you're getting is you think you're getting a return, but against, against what currency, you know? If you're getting a return against garbage, you, what you got is more garbage, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not beating Bitcoin. I, right. Since its inception, the stock market has never outperformed Bitcoin. Um, not that that, like, I don't know. I mean, I feel like, yeah, I won't get, I won't go down that rabbit hole, but yeah. Um, where, where are some good places that people can follow your work? I know you've got a lot of good stuff on YouTube. Um, and well, everything I keep, I try to keep everything collected as much as possible on my website. Uh, you, you, there, so in some cases to find my talks and stuff, it's easier to find it directly on YouTube than it is to go parsing down the page where I have everything listed. Uh, because I can't put every video up as a video. I just put the link to it. But michaelrechtenwald.com is where all of my work is. Uh, not all of it. I, there's a lot of stuff from the past that I've jettisoned and I don't link to anymore, you know. I, I'm, I have a few remnants of my socialist days on there just for old time's sake. <laughs> um, so nice. if people want to see, see the evolution, they can see that. But uh, michaelrechtenwald.com and I have uh, a bunch of pages on there. There's... Uh, all my media, all my essays, not all of them, but I've been, you know, my essays, my media appearances, uh, my books, links to my books. And I also sell my books. They come, obviously they're on Amazon, but I sell directly off of my website, bookstore, Apogee Books. Uh, and then I, I sell directly to uh, people. I sign the copies for them and write notes and stuff. So I keep a little cottage industry of book sales that way. And uh, everything's there, including pictures of my readers. Uh, uh, I like to keep everybody feeling like they're part of it. Uh, they're, they're part of what I'm trying to do. Yeah, I definitely look forward to, uh, I'm going to buy Thought Criminal right after this and read that. Oh, thank and, you. Right. And uh, I love the title, Springtime for Snowflakes. I think that's so funny. <laughs> Um, <laughs> people think it's not a serious book because the the title is is funny but it's yeah. a damn serious book yeah oh. the left oh. tried to dismiss it because of the title you know yeah but uh the title is, is catchy and so it works but once you get the book you see it's a serious book yeah i see you got the infamous tucker carlson uh whoops the infamous Tucker Tucker Carlson uh, interview here that got you uh, yeah. can't canceled. Um, yeah, well, that was already being canceled when I did that interview. Yeah, that was sort of in the interim while they were trying to cancel me, while they were driving me to the margins of the university and trying to wreck my academic career. Mm. Um, I think at that by that point they had already moved me to the Russian department and stuck me on my own personal gulag. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> Seriously, it was like a complete Siberia they put me in, in effect. Uh, totally isolate me from everybody. Uh, yeah, I, I've been on there a couple times. Um, I've been around on the media, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's really good having you on, Michael. I really appreciate the conversation. I yeah, I appreciate it. I learned from you, too. I learned some things from you, and I like hearing what you have to think, what, what you have to say. It's great to talk to you. Awesome. That was a really fun conversation, and uh, yeah, it's a growing issue, the the amount of uh, uh, control that the state and these uh, tech giants have over our lives, whether it's social media or Google, and their ability to uh, really sway people's opinions and create realities. And it was really interesting listening to him talk about a lot of these ideologies being like a religion or a cult, um, because in a lot of ways they are. Uh, they inform the way that people see the world and to be suggested anything different, even if it could be radically better, uh, is uh, you know kind of mind-boggling to some people. Um, and I think that's why Bitcoin, you know, is such a strange concept to people because people have no idea what good money could be like. Um, but uh, yeah, it was a fun conversation. He's got he's got good stuff all over the place. Like his YouTube videos of him speaking are definitely uh, good things to watch. And yeah, I mean, it kind of reminds me of the allegory, Plato's allegory of the cave, where you know now once you see it, you can't unsee it. But the problem is, so many people are living stuck in the cave. Um, and, you know, the ultimate goal, I think, of most people, you know, talking about these different things is they want to see a prosperous society. Uh, and these ideas of, like, state growth uh, is problematic, you know, and standing in front of that because you centralize all the wealth, you centralize all the power, you centralize all the control over information. And what do you get? You get a society that isn't that prosperous. It's prosperous for a few people. It's exactly what we see happening today. Um, so if you're pushing back against it, you know, which is always a good thing when you hear new ideas, um, just take the time to like really research and, and, and hear out what these perspectives are talking about. Um, yeah, if you like what I'm doing with the podcast, uh, I'd love to chat. Um, always open to chatting. Reach out to me on LinkedIn, on uh, Patreon, or well, you can support me on Patreon for a dollar a month, but you don't have to do that for us to chat. You can reach out to me on Twitter. Uh, that would be probably the best way to reach out to me. I uh, spend a lot of time on there, uh, despite it being kind of a toxic place because there's some pretty good smart people like Michael who are posting uh, truth bombs every day but yeah thanks for listening <laughs>